Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, August 10th, 2020. On the show today, listener questions. We nerd out on Carousel of Progress, and Jim tells us how Disney became a publicly traded company back in 1940. Let's get started by bringing in the man who's still it from the last time he played tag as a child. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Uh, that actually reminds me of my, one of my favorite Rodney Dangerfield jokes. Rodney's at the beach as a kid. He gets separated from his parents. He's then with a policeman walking him up and down the boardwalk. And Rodney turns to the policeman and goes, do you think we'll ever find them? And he, the policeman says, I don't know, kid. There's so many places they could hide. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's start out with a shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thank you all so much for your support. Uh, And for those of you in the parks, please stop me to say hi. It's the highlight of my day. And speaking of being in the parks, BandCamp subscribers get two new shows soon. Uh, Laurel and I do the nature trails at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And then we have a quick walk around the Epcot Resorts. Jim, did you, you have you heard the Animal Kingdom one yet? With the thing about the overly dramatic duck? No. Okay. Oh, <laughs> There's a section in there where uh, with a cast member and an overly dramatic duck, and I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. Okay. Got to listen. Sounds like a little bit of projecting, but okay. You know, I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. So, All right. Thanks to new subscribers, Jerry A, Alyssa H, and Meredith S, and longtime subscribers, Eric F, Jim B, and Pete Roy 22. Jim, these are the actors in the film clips played at Hollywood Studios' sci-fi dine-in. Every day one summer, they were attacked by giant crickets, kidnapped by aliens, and oozed on by all manner of slimes. In fact, the creature you see in the blob scene is actually Alyssa's mom's fruity jello casserole recipe, which everyone on the set thought was scrumptious. True story. <laughs> we're not going there, so just move along. Move along. Okay. All right, so... We'll do a combination of news and listener questions here. This one is from Jenny, who writes in, I I love the Disney dish. I've had to cancel two Walt Disney World trips and uh, had a just overall crappy New Year. Hello, 2020. Am I right? So she's looking into February 21, and she says, I found a reasonable rate at the Grand Destino and club level, and I'm willing to splurge to make up for the depression of this year and the fact that mini waffles and mimosas can make anything better. True that. Have you heard any rumblings about when club level offerings will be opening back up. So let me just say, Grand Destino Club Level, I think is the, when it's open, is the best club level value in Walt Disney World. It's hundreds of dollars cheaper than any other resort. Uh, I think the view from the club is fantastic and the amenities are great. The big issue that they're having, mm-hmm. is, it's two things really. One, although it's a relatively large lounge, there are more people who want to be in it than can be in it. And they haven't figured out how to limit access to the mm-hmm. lounge. The second problem that they're having is one that virtually every hotel chain is facing in one way or another right now. And that is, how do you feed people in the morning in a shared space safely? So if you think about like Holiday Inn Expresses that do free breakfast or mm-hmm. um, you know, any of the Hilton chains or anything like that, how do they, how do, they do that? So um, I talked to my twin sister who happens to work for Hilton. Mm-hmm. And she said what they're doing is lots of prepackaged stuff that you can microwave. So instead of Fresh waffles, you're getting prepackaged waffles that you can microwave. Everyone takes them back to their table uh, and they eat there. And my sense is that in a couple of months, mm-hmm. Disney will figure out something like that for the club levels. Like maybe you can't eat it there, but maybe they do 
maybe you come in, grab your stuff and leave so that you don't have as many people in the lounge at once. But I definitely think given the amount of money that they could make off of club level rooms and the the amenity that the club itself is, that those things will be coming back as soon as soon as it's practical. No, that makes sense. And I, I like I said, if you guys are looking at rates for 2021, Grand Destino club level is the best and least expensive club level in Walt Disney World. If I had to rank the other ones after that, I'd probably say Polynesian and then Animal Kingdom Lodge. Um, after that, but again, hundreds of dollars more expensive. Okay. All right. Uh, here's an email from John who asks, have you been to beer garden in Germany since the reopening? How is the family style service and what selections do they bring you? So I ran by beer garden over the weekend to do this research, John, the family style service works like any other family style restaurant. They bring you out a set of plates with various selections on it from the menu. So breads and salads, beets and sides, things like that. And then you eat that and you can also tell them what you want more of, and they will just keep bringing it as, until you until you say you're done. Hmm. The other thing that I checked was if you're vegan or vegetarian, what are they doing? So they've got garden-based vegan options, so beefless beef and fishless fish were specifically mentioned. But the other regular things on the menu, bunches of salads, lots of sausages, hmm. rotisserie chicken, schnitzel, spätzle, potatoes, sauerkraut, and then a bunch of desserts. So you can pick and choose from that. Still $46 for adults, still $25 for kids, and there's a bunch of allergy-friendly options too. Okay. And uh, while we're talking about Epcot, uh, Jim, you saw the news that Tangerine Cafe is temporarily closed in the Morocco Pavilion at Epcot? Yeah. <sighs> I was sad. Yeah. I love that facility. It's one of the best uh, counter-service restaurants in Walt Disney World, Con- consistently highly rated. Um, the food is excellent. It was served fresh. I think the tabbouleh that they have there mm-hmm. is like the best tabbouleh I've ever had anywhere, which I kind of like tabbouleh. Mm-hmm. But it also made me realize this. So, Jim, I think one of the reasons why Disney's running food and wine for the rest of the year is because so many sit-down restaurants are closed, that food booths are the only efficient way to, to get food to people. What do you think? That's an interesting insight. And just in the changes we've seen over the last two and three weeks with the new policies in place about you can't be walking and eating or drinking. Yeah. That sort of thing. I mean, they're certainly taking advantage of it at this one park. And by the way, I don't know if you saw the images that our, our buddy Bio Reconstruct put out there, but they are now beginning work once again on Harmonious. I saw. Yeah, we um, in fact, I've been to Epcot, I think, three times in the last five days. Mm-hmm. And we see uh, on the World's Biggest Lagoon, we mm-hmm. see a lot of boat traffic working around the different things that are set inside the lagoon. Mm-hmm. And that's that's happening virtually all day. Okay. Because from what I've been hearing on the entertainment side, we need this show, especially given what's going on with attendance levels overall at the Walt Disney World Resort. We need this show. So it's you have all of the things that are being fast-tracked or prioritized, harmonious is it's number two. So the rumor I heard was Ratatouille opens sometime October-ish. Mm-hmm. That scans with what I've heard, yep. And then Guardians at some point in 2021, but those are the two big things for Epcot. Yeah. There's that whole other sub-issue with Guardians that, you know, you got to get the people together to make the ride film. Oh, right. You can't, and you can't bring those people in because, A, you can't get insurance to bring high-priced talent. Yeah, okay. We'll have to talk about that on an upcoming show. Yep. All right, Jim. So, I wanted to do a a quick thing here on uh, on Carousel of Progress. And normally, you do the -hmm. the sort of main piece, and we have a main piece here, but I've been obsessing on this for a couple of weeks, so I figured (laughs) it would be good for the show. Can't wait. All right, so here's the setup, folks. So I've said on the show before that Carousel of Progress is one of my favorite attractions. In fact, it's my daughter Hannah's favorite attraction in Walt Disney World. It's also one of the few things in Walt Disney World 
that was personally designed by Walt himself for the 1964 World's Fair. And Jim, you and I have done an entire Bandcamp episode, a live event, in fact, in New York uh, on the history of this attraction, right? Yep. All right. So Bandcamp subscribers, that's available for you guys. So I was sitting in Carousel of Progress the other day um, while I was testing touring plans and I was listening to the script and I was wondering if it was possible through clues in the script to not only identify the specific day on which each scene occurs, but the city or town in which it happens. So for example, in scene two, the summer scene where John talks about getting radio broadcasts from as far away as Pittsburgh, it means the family isn't anywhere close to Pittsburgh, right? So where are they? Hmm. Okay. So it's it's taken me a couple of weeks, Jim, <laughs> and some some phone calls to some shady government organizations, but I'm pretty sure I've nailed down the exact date and location of scene one. Do you want to hear about it? Sure. All right. So let's set the stage for scene one. Uh, and the script we're going by here is the one from 1994, and it's the one currently in use in Walt Disney World. So Aaron's going to play us the audio from this script to, to set it up. Yeah, it looks like the Robins are getting ready to celebrate Valentine's Day today. <laughs> what year is it? Oh, right around the turn of the century. And believe me, things couldn't be any better than they are today. Yes, sir, buildings are towering now as high as 20 stories. And moving pictures flicker up on a big screen. We have almost 8,000 automobiles in this country, and we can travel by train from New York to California in less than seven days. And I even hear tell about two brothers in North Carolina who are working on some kind of flying contraption. <laughs> It'll never work. Okay, so uh, John starts off by saying turn of the century, and that's actually pretty broad. So let's assume for the sake of argument that to start with, it can be anywhere from the year 1895 to 1905. That's what we'll start with. Hmm. And let's take John's script lines one by one and see if we can narrow down that 10-year period to a specific year. Here are John's facts in order. The first thing he says is that buildings are towering now as high as 20 stories. So in 1900, the tallest skyscraper in the, in the world was the Park Row building in New York at 29 stories. It opened in 1899, and the previous record was the Manhattan Life Insurance building at 18 stories until 1899. So if John says that buildings are at least 20 stories tall, then the scene has to happen in 1899 or later because there are no buildings that tall prior to 1899. So immediately, we've narrowed down our time range to sometime between 1899 and 1905. So that's good. Yep. His next line is, moving pictures flicker up on a big screen. So the first theater in the United States that showed motion pictures was the Vitascope Hall on Canal Street in New Orleans, which began operations in July of 1896. So it's perfectly reasonable for John to know about that. So we're still 1899 to 1905. The next line, to, uh, John says, is we have almost 8,000 automobiles in this country. And there were, in fact, according to the uh, Federal, Highway, uh, uh, Federal Highway Department, 8,000 automobiles registered in the United States in, 19 in 1900. So John couldn't have known that, though, until after the year eight, uh, 1900, because the government had to count the entire year of automobile sales and then compile the results. So John couldn't possibly know that particular fact until... 1901 at the earliest. So now we've narrowed it down to 1901 to 1905. The next thing he says is that we can travel by train from New York to California in less than seven days. The Library of Congress has real... <laughs> Let me just pause here, Jim, and say the Library of Congress has railroad maps of the United States from 1900. 
And you could indeed get from New York to California in seven days. And while I was verifying this, mm-hmm. I found out that the really interesting thing is that if you were leaving Manhattan, there were no tunnels for your railroad to use to get west off the island. So you actually had to get across the Hudson River. You had to go north on the Hudson River Railroad line to Troy, New York, and you cross the river there at a narrow point. And then you go down to Philadelphia, then to Baltimore, where you take the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad west until it becomes the Cincinnati Railroad in Ohio. And you can keep going west until you hit Lawrence, Indiana, and then you'd switch to the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad. And then you'd have to go really, really far south and then west before you end up in Los Angeles. But it was entirely possible in the period of 1901 to 1905 to get from New York to California in less than seven days on a train. So that all fits. Okay, I'm loving this. Keep going. So his next line is, I even hear tell of two brothers from North Carolina who are working on some kind of flying contraption and it'll never work. So the mention of the Wright brothers uh, not yet being successful really narrows this down. Their first flight is December 17th, 1903, and they get interested in aeronautics around 1897. So the only years possible now are 1901 through 1903. So Wilbur Wright actually published an article called Angle of Incidents in the Aeronautical Journal and then in a German magazine in July of 1901. And their experiments on flight were reported in the Scientific American issue of February 22nd. 1902. So that narrows it down to 1901 or 1902. All right. Okay. So finally, and this is a great clue, there's a calendar in the kitchen. And if you look at the calendar in the kitchen, it has February 1st on a Friday. And that only happened in 1901. Okay. okay. So we know it's on Valentine's Day. We think it's Valent- It's now, uh, that would make Valentine's Day a Thursday, February 14th, 1901. Okay. Now, is there anything in the scene that happens after 1901 that would prove that date wrong. And there are two things in the scene that are date specific. So I had to verify these. So the first one is the newspaper that John is reading. It's actually a real newspaper called Frank Leslie's Illustrated Weekly. It was super popular, distributed all around the United States. In fact, you can actually find copies of them on eBay today. And the style of the banner on the front page of Frank Leslie's Illustrated Weekly was used as early as 1858 and ran through at least 1866. So if you're in one of the seats on the left side of the theater too, you can actually see part of the image on the front page of the paper. So using that little bit of image, I started looking at all of the front pages of Frank Leslie's Illustrated to figure out what date that newspaper was published. And Jim, that's a lot of newspapers. (laughs) So every week starting in uh, 1858 Hmm. and going forward. So a lot of newspapers. So fortunately, a, a Disney dish listener named uh, Leo came to my rescue. He wrote a note. He said, hey, this was an actual newspaper. According to a website that I read, the newspaper is dated July 25th, 1863, but maybe that's changed. So uh, doing some research on that, the website that Leo mentions is Inside the Magic, and it's an article by Kevin Yee. So to, uh, to verify this, uh, I, downloaded, I downloaded an archival copy of Frank Leslie's Weekly from 1863. And lo and behold, it is true. Our listeners can't see it, but you can see there that I I actually have a copy of the actual newspaper. It's amazing. Okay. (laughs) From 1863. All right. So that's the, that's the newspaper that, uh, and it's, uh, it deals with uh, a series of canals Mm -hmm. being built. Right. Uh, So that 1863 newspaper fits in our timeline. Uh, Also, uh, Frank Leslie was really big into the civil war stuff at the time, but Mm. So the 1863 newspaper fits into our timeline because it's not after the Wright brothers fly in 1903. 
And it also tells us that John is a Civil War history buff, because why else would he be reading a newspaper that's almost 50 years old? There you go. So the other date-specific thing in the scene is the exchange between John and his son James about James using John's new stereoscope to look at the dancer Little Egypt. Now, James, I thought I told you to ask my permission before using my new stereoscope. That's not a toy, you know. Ooh, voila. Uh, uh. So that's Little Egypt doing a new Egypt, eh, Dad? Isn't she a knockout? She's the star of the new World's Fair in St. Louis, and <clears throat> now you put that away before your mother finds it. Oh, Dad. You heard me. All right, so Jim, manufactured stereoscopes date back to the 1830s, and they came in all kinds of designs. The specific model of stereoscope that James is holding in this scene is called a Holmes stereoscope, and that's Holmes as in Oliver Wendell Holmes, and it was made in the form shown in Carousel of Progress starting in the 1850s for over 100 years. So the stereoscope itself is correct for the period, which is good to know. Also, uh, Little Egypt was the name given to a number of popular women belly dancers in the late 1800s to the early 1900s. In fact, it was used by so many dancers that it became sort of a generic brand name like aspirin um, for dancing. So hearing about Little Egypt works with our date of 1901 as well. The thing that's potentially problematic is that John mentions the St. Louis World's Fair. Of course, its official name was the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, and it celebrated the 100-year anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase from France. It was held in St. Louis, Missouri from April 30th to December 1st, 1904. Okay. So that's problematic because if the script actually happens in 1904, then everything John says at the beginning of the scene is wrong because Wilbur and Wilbur and Orville Wright flew successfully in 1903 and they flew hundreds of times in 1904. So saying it, it's not going to work doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Also, by 1904, there were 55,000 cars in the United States, not 8,000. And finally, the dates on the calendar in the kitchen are all wrong, right? So what do we do, Jim? This is a problem. But I, I'm going to love how you're going to thread this. Please, <laughs> please, go, go. There's a simple explanation for all of this, and that's that John was an early investor in the St. Louis World's Fair. So World, World's Fairs are super expensive. Fundraising for the 1904 fair began in 1899 when the city of St. Louis issued $5 million in bonds, and then private citizens and businesses in and around Missouri had raised an additional $5 million by January of 1901, guaranteeing that the St. Louis World's Fair would take place in 1904. Mm. Thus, it was easy for John to know about the 1904 World's Fair in 1901. Although I couldn't find any record from the St. Louis World's Fair of anyone named Little Egypt performing there, so that means John, as an early investor, probably heard about potential entertainment for the fair. He's saying she's the star as a form of promotion to the audience to go see her so that he can get a return on his investment. Now, (laughs) I know what you're thinking. Uh, That's kind of shady, right? Okay. John's behavior here is what we would call a forward-looking statement, which the Securities and Exchange Commission definitely frowns upon. But John's in luck because the SEC wasn't established until 1934. So legally, he was in the clear here. And Jim, that's how it all makes sense. (laughs) Okay. This is an amazing piece of historical origami here. You're, you're doing some great folding back and forth here, but please continue. All right. So the next question is where? Where is the house in this scene? If we know that it takes place on Thursday, February 14th, 1901, where? And it's a little bit trickier because they never mention a specific location, but we already have three clues. The first clue is that John must live in the Midwest 
because the World's Fair thing. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't live in a town because we can see farmland outside the window. And the third clue goes back to the calendar on the wall. If you look closely, you'll see that the calendar is from the AC Millerton and Sons hardware store. So through some friends at an unnamed government agency, I was able to determine that AC Millerton was a real person who lived in the Midwestern United States at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, in fact. And where did he live, Jim? Arkansas City, Kansas. Uh, so the first scene in Carousel of Progress mm -hmm. takes place on a farm near Arkansas City, Kansas on Thursday, February 14th, 1901. And John is a Civil War buff and is more current on aeronautical news than construction news. He's also an investor in the 1904 World's Fair. That's the backstory. Uh, honestly, if I had a lighter, I'd light it at this point. That, that, that was an amazing bit of detective work. Holy cow. Yeah, I think, I think we could do scenes two and three as well. Uh -huh. Scene four, I don't think there's anything, but, uh, but I'll work on scene two next. We'll see what happens. Wow. Oh, that was great fun. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us the story of how the Disney company went from being owned by Walt to a publicly traded company. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, this was actually a this topic mm. about how the Walt Disney Company became uh, a publicly traded company was actually a listener question from a couple months ago, right? Yeah, and it actually became that much more newsworthy on the heels of this week's earnings call and how <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. the appropriate noise, Len. <laughs> you know, oof, oof. Yeah. You know, what was it, an eight cent dividend? They actually made money mm -hmm. in the quarter, yep. which was... A miracle. Oh. They, uh, I think investors had expected them to lose around 64 cents a share, and they made eight cents a share, which... Whoever set up Disney Plus to debut in November of 2019, they should be building the shrine of the company right now. I'm, I'm sure there is right now, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the only thing that turned this around. In fact, it, it has been the lifeboat in so many different directions. But I bring that up because, again, all anyone can talk about is how much the theme parks have lost and, the, you know, the other issues that Disney's dealing with. And Disney's had tough times previously. I mean, if we, we go back to uh, 1928, where, where Pat Powers basically took Oswald the Lucky Rabbit out from under Walt, and mm -hmm. he was forced to along with our Byworks to create Mickey Mouse. But back in the day then, there were only five guys at Disney, who worked on that first Mickey short with synchronized sound, a Steamboat Willie. Mm -hmm. We had Ab Iwerks, Wilfred Jackson, Les Clark, Dick Lundy, and Johnny Cannon. And thank goodness that, you know, that hit. So, you know, it's 1929, and let's remember that that's, you know, when the stock market crashed, but this is also when Walt Disney Productions, as a production company, gets formed. But it's it's tiny. It's itty bitty. You know, it, it's Walt being cautious after what happened with Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And at this point, the studio just consists of sixteen hundred square feet of production space, Len, with only twenty five employees. So every employee has sixty four square feet, or basically a box eight by eight. There we go. Assu it assuming there's no bathrooms or kitchens or any other. <laughs> walls of any kind. <laughs> I was also thinking that, you know, given they're probably feeding them individual bowls of milk, because animation studio doubles as a veal pen. <laughs> but anyway, all right, we jump ahead four years, uh, Three Little Pigs, it, it's released. Studio's doing better now. It's got 150 employees. They have 20,000 square feet of wow, production okay. space. This is where 
it starts actually in a weird sort of way to go off the rails. We're in the middle of a Great Depression at this point, right? We've had the stock market crash. That's it, exactly. That's it, exactly. But Disney is one of those lucky businesses because people, they still need to be entertained. Who's Afraid of the Big Bag Wolf actually became sort of the anthem of the Great Depression. That's right. It became a super popular. At this point, the studio's got 150 employees, 20,000 square feet of production space. And on the success of The Three Little Pigs, Walt decides he wants to do a full-length animated feature. But here's the thing. Walt totally whiffed when it came to estimating what it was going to take manpower-wise and overall production costs to do an animated feature. I mean, and you're a guy who, who's great at math and sussing things out. So this is how Walt thought back in the day. Silly Symphony, like Three Little Pigs, cost $25,000 to make. They're seven minutes long. So if I want to make and a full-length animated feature, that's basically 10 Silly Symphonies, you know, 70 minutes long. So 10 times 25,000, that means I can make my full-length animated feature for just (laughs) $250,000. That's adorable thinking. It is, it is, because Walt missed this by almost a factor of six. When all was said and done and they delivered Snow White in December of thirty-seven. They'd had to go to the Bank of America because at that point, Snow White cost $1.4 million. And is that $1.4 million in 1934 money? There you go. So, so $300 billion in today's <laughs> money or whatever, something well, like that. But, but the upside is that it then goes on and sells $8 million worth of tickets, which is the oh, equivalent okay. today of $100 million. All right, there you go. But in order to do that, Walt went from... 150 employees in, you know, 1933 to 300 employees in 1936. And during crunch time in 37 with Snow White, the staff has now doubled to 600 people. 600 people. Yeah. Okay. That's why, that's why he's off by, he's off by a factor of two on his estimate. Yeah. And he's built up this giant staff. He's invested, you know, a lot in technology and equipment to make animated features so it's not like, okay, we've made Snow White and we'll just go back to doing shorts. It's like, no, this is the world we live in now. And in fact, even before Snow White arrives in theaters and you know, premieres in Hollywood in December of 37, he puts mm-hmm. two additional films into development. Bambi in April of 37. And speaking of adorable thinking, Walt's reasoning for taking this Felix Salton book and making an animated feature out of it is like, well, Snow White had all those little animal friends. I mean, woodland we- creatures. We're drawing woodland creatures. We're experts in woodland creatures. That's yeah. exactly, you know, that, that, that we could knock this out. You know, bad, nothing. And it turns out they did Snow White in two and a half years. Bambi took them five, largely because Walt suddenly got obsessed with, with anatomy. And it's like, well, the animals actually have to look like animals as opposed to that they're made out of rubber hoses. And then, you know, the, the funny thing is, is, if Walt was producing software, mm-hmm. everything that you've said to this point would have been true for software <laughs> estimates. Like anyone here who's a programmer or works with technology completely mm-hmm. understands how all of this stuff goes wrong. Because it's like, oh, well, we just wrote this code. Now I'm just going to tweak it a little bit. How hard can it be to do it again? Like, <laughs> I'm just going to tweak it here a little bit. And now it's, you know, six years later. Yeah. yeah you know, that, that, it's exactly the same. I'm actually having flashbacks, Jim, as we're, uh, as we're doing okay. this. I might, I might start drinking. It's okay. Early. Okay. Well, as you huddle there under the desk with your security blanket, I'll continue with the story here. So <laughs> right. January of 38, Snow White begins its run at Radio City, also at the Sheridan theater in Miami and well, it's January. Let's go to Florida. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on this. Go ahead. <laughs> well, actually there's another reason. Max Fleischer 
has gone down to Florida and has opened a state-of-the-art studio of his own. In fact, he's got 300,000 square feet with 700 employees. That's because Paramount is paying Max to make the second full-length cell animated feature, and that's going to be Gulliver's Travels. The theory among animation historians is this was a cunning move on Walt's part to have the movie play in Miami because Max had all of these animators who were working on Gulliver's Travels and looking at you know the work that Disney was doing. And Walt had these two other films, Bambi and Pinocchio, in the works, and he was going to need additional bodies. And so the hope was that they would, you know, go to the theater in Miami, see Snow White, and go, ooh, I want to go work for Disney. And that actually did prove to be the case, Len. In fact, so many Fleischer employees ended up on the Disney payroll that there was a joke at the time in the industry that Max had accidentally built his studio on top of one of the stops for Harriet Tubman's underground railroad <laughs> smuggling people out at night <laughs> well yeah, that's the thing you know but instead of taking people up to canada to get so they could be free they they evidently there was a tunnel that took people straight to burbank and they came up in the disney line so <laughs> all great. right snow white goes into wide release in february of 38 makes eight million dollars now that they're flush with cash walt and and Roy take a cold-hearted look at the, the, their Hyperion studio setup where they've done things like rented apartment buildings next to the studio and outfitted every room in these apartment buildings so they can, you know, support an animation production. And it just, it's this really jury-rigged setup. And it's like, this is just not going to work. We need to modernize. We need to get everybody in, in the same building so, you know, we can move that much faster. So August of 1938, Walt and Roy buy 51 acres in Burbank, which is going to be the site of their new $2 million state-of-the-art studio. However, Roy is as cautious as Walt is adventurous. So it's during this period that Roy insists that Walt Disney production actually incorporates. And again, good thing, because now by December of 38, the staff's levels have risen to 900 people. So... They break ground February 39 on the new animation building. Unfortunately, the real world rears its its ugly head at this point. In September of Mm -hmm. 39, the German army invades Poland, and this is effectively the start of World War II. Suddenly, the markets where Disney really made the profits? Snow White did great in North America, but it did amazing in Europe. It did amazing in Asia. And, you know, with these markets now closed off, because obviously, you know, it's difficult to get, even just get the prints overseas to run these theaters. Right. That creeps in the financials. But meanwhile- Oh, it has to. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, you know, things are moving forward. First group of now over a thousand employees moves to the new lot from the old Hyperion Studio starting in Christmas Eve, 1939. And then again, the wheels begin to come off. February of 1940, Pinocchio has its premiere at the Center Theater in New York. Uh, it goes into wide release February 23rd of that same month. Pinocchio cost $2.5 million to make. That's $1.5 million more than Snow White did. But again, we've had all these markets close overseas. Yeah. And so- That's, that's roughly 45 to $50 million in today's money. Yeah. So, and so a decent a decent chunk of change. It is. And as a result, because these markets are closed off, Disney is is forced uh, to take a million dollar write down on the movie. So 
$18 million. Now, but here's the thing. Roy sees this happening, and he realizes he's going to have to do something to keep the company afloat. So he goes to Walton and proposes taking the company public, especially in the, this, this narrow window of time between uh, before Wall Street realizes that Pinocchio isn't going to be a Snow White-sized earner. So that's really interesting because mm-hmm. if, if it goes into if it goes into release on February twenty third, right? In today's market, by February twenty fourth, we would know absolutely, like, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, but, it, you've hit it exactly because again, this was during an age when that information didn't flow quite as quickly. It's only six weeks later that Walties in production goes public. It's April second, nineteen forty. They issue a hundred and fifty five thousand shares, each of them selling for $25, and the company is able to raise $4 million virtually overnight, and it now has 1,800 shareholders. Think about this. You're, you're one of the, the shareholders of the Disney company. It's like, woohoo! And the, your first annual report, the, the, the fiscal year ends September 28th, 1940, and you finally get your report, and, and that's when you learn that Pinocchio fell below expectations. And, and we've talked at length on an earlier show about Fantasia, which thanks to Fantasound and only being in 1230s around the country. In fact, I love the, the language they use in the uh, 1940 annual report. It's like, Fantasia is being presented in methods never before employed in the exhibition of motion pictures. And as a result, this method of distribution will require a longer period of time for the company to recoup the cost of the picture. <laughs> But by 1970, we should be set. <laughs> there we go. You know, I, and so that loses another million dollars. I mean, again, because this cost, uh, Fantasia cost 2.28 million to make, but uh, not okay, as much so as they, Pinocchio. So they, so they, they got 4 million mm-hmm. from the stock. Right. They immediately lose a million for mm-hmm. Fantasia. Yeah. Oof. It's tough. Disney has gone from doing a, an animated feature every two years, two and a half years, to now the new plan, or as Walt sees it, he wants a new animated feature in theaters every six months. Wow, okay. So the, the studio now has over 1,200 employees. Four years earlier, it had half that number. So clearly something has to be done to right the ship. So uh, February 41, Walt begins layoffs. And this does not go over well with the rank and file, which brings us to the famous Disney animation strike of May right. of 1941. 200 employees walk out the door and begin picketing outside the studio. This goes on for five weeks. And during that time, Disney stock price land goes from $25 a share to $4 a share. Wow. But in the end, it sort of works out because... When the stock, uh, the strikers was resolved in July of 41, the studio, through arbitration, is allowed to reduce its headcount to 694 employees. The now depleted staff has to, to struggle to finish Dumbo out ahead of its October 41 release. That debuts at the Broadway Theater in New York on October 23rd, goes into wide release on Halloween of that same year. The nice thing about Dumbo, they produce it for two-thirds of the cost of Snow White. It's doing really well in, in North American theater, so Walt breathes a sigh of release, but then comes December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, effectively dragging the United States, which had been sort of hesitant to enter World War II, into the fray. 
And the very next day, Len Walt arrives at work to discover 500 members of an anti-aircraft unit who have taken up residence at the studio. They are there to protect the Lockheed plant just down the street, and they stay there for eight months, taking over virtually every bit of empty space in the studio. And, And there was a time where in the studio parking lot, there were three million rounds of ammunition piled up for these anti-aircraft units. And given what just happened in Beirut... Oh, right, yeah. One round it was of, a different time back then, Jim. It was. It was a different time. It was, but you know, where we started this story off today is, you know, it was talking about, oh my God, this quarterly earnings call and, you know, only 8% dividend and Divney's in a really tough spot. And it's like... Oh, Disney's been in tough spots before. All right. You know, it, yeah. it, and it managed to come back from them. I mean, you know, and you can't do much worse than, you know, 3 million rounds of ammunition in your parking lot and 500 <laughs> soldiers telling you, you know, you can't get in your office. I sleep here now. Yeah. That's a, that's a whole different level of, uh, of challenge for the, uh, for the company. Yeah. Did you notice in the, uh, in the annual report mm-hmm. that they said that the parks were slightly profitable? But did you see why that was that you know, they believe it was impacted demand i mean that people hadn't been in the park forever and you know so they were they they were buying more but but kind of the unsaid thing here was the whole speculators the the number of folks who you know were going in and grabbing up stuff in fact i did you see the images on twitter just earlier this week about i want to say they introduced a new set of the mickey ears in in the shop at epcot in france Oh, and they were gone. Yeah, they yeah. were gone like the same day. And, yeah. They, I, uh, they did the same thing at the uh, Magic Kingdom. They introduced, ah, what was it? Was it a new Wishable? But like they did it in the morning and then by the afternoon it was gone because yeah. we keep track of the merchandise stuff. The other thing that they said, I thought, I thought this was interesting. So the, the two things that I got out of it were mm-hmm. one, Disney thinks that demand is actually there. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that's dampening the demand right now mm-hmm. is the fact that Florida's not doing well with cases. Like yeah. they, they couldn't say that, obviously, mm-hmm. but- they said that uh, initial demand, once they announced the reopening of the parks, initial demand was high, mm-hmm. and that it's fallen off after that. And, and so, the, the, again, the unsaid part is, comma, because of Florida, period. Mm-hmm. But the other interesting thing is that annual pass holders aren't as profitable as uh, people who take vacations, which we all knew, right? Oh, yeah. But the, the numbers that they gave were mm-hmm. like, annual. I think they said annual pass holders over one or two days mm-hmm. for one or two day visits aren't as, aren't as profitable as someone's staying, you know, seven, mm-hmm. and, which is understandable. But I guess the question I have is, what if the annual pass holder does that once a month? Like, what's the balancing point there? Hmm. How, many visits, how many visits does the average annual pass holder have to make to be as profitable as the averaged out-of-state guest without an annual pass? I'd love to know what that number is. Yeah. Especially now, you know, when, you know, supposedly if you're flying into Florida, especially from other hotspots around the country, you're supposed to be quarantining in place for two weeks or that sort of thing. So you're, you're actually, if we're talking about the annual pass holders are going to the park, they're the Florida locals or the, you know, the, the folks who live within the state of Florida. And are they not one of the, uh, the three states specifically mentioned in the, uh, in the quarantine order, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you live a good part of the year down there as well. And, and the fact that when you're an annual pass holder, especially one who lives in Florida, Man, yep. you've learned to skin the cat quite a while ago. You know, it's just sort of, these are the folks who, 
you know, as opposed to getting their their five dollar coffee at Starbucks on Main Street, yeah. are the ones. I'm, who asking, were, I'm, I'm bringing my uh, Starbucks uh, coffee uh, packet from home, yeah. asking for a free thirty ounce water from Starbucks, and mm. then you know, milking that for two hours. Sure. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've got our tables in Wonderland cards, mm-hmm. you know, to get our 20% discounts on dining. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The, these guys working the angles and, and know how to, to, to stretch a buck, you know, when it comes to visiting the Disney parks yeah. and till we get a better handle on COVID, uh, I just don't see the situation changing. So yeah, what, I wonder what that number is. I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and estimate it. Mm-hmm. Did you see just this past week where Universal is selling to Florida locals, the buy one get the rest of the year free? Yes, this was interesting. The uh, The ticket is, um, no, it's it's not buy one, get the rest of the year free. Mm-hmm. It's buy a one-day ticket to mm-hmm. one park and get the other park free, and they're going to run that deal for the rest of the year. Oh, okay. You know, the whole notion of trying to get that second bite of the apple, because face it, once you're inside the park, you still have to buy food. You still have to, you know. You, oh, yeah, yeah. You know. They- and and what, what they're trying to do is they're trying to extend the duration that people stay in the parks because, mm-hmm. and let's be honest here, mm-hmm. it, there are times when you can get through the animal kingdom in four hours. Yeah. Like you can see literally everything there is to see mm-hmm. in, in four or five hours. So if the park opens at eight, you're done by one. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at that point, you can leave the park and go get lunch elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? But imagine if you were if you were able to park hop to another Disney park, mm-hmm. you would conceivably have lunch on property and then maybe have dinner in another park. And I think that's what Universal is trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Parks open at eight, you know, if you're staying on site or if you've got an annual pass, mm-hmm. right? So if you're, let's say you're staying on site, you've got one of these new one day, two park tickets mm-hmm. for $165, go to one park and then you have lunch at Universal instead of going somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you have dinner in the other park. So it's worth noting here that in addition to offering this media, we did also see Universal creep in its operating hours of the park by at least yeah a, by one hour, by at least yeah one, one hour. hour, and then they closed nine rides. But the the rides that they closed uh, day in the park with Barney mm-hmm. King and Kodos, Twirl and Hurl, they were minor attractions. I looked at those and said, you know, I might have included a couple of those on a touring plan, but yeah. You know, if it's a choice between closing that or riding Men in Black twice. Oh, no. No, no, no. I'll, but I'll but at the Men same time, I, I genuinely felt for the, the guys who spent two and three years working on Fast and Furious Supercharged. And it's like, ooh, you made that Oof. list. That that can't yeah. f- have felt good. So It's not a very good attraction, though. It's, no, it isn't. Uh, it isn't. But oof, it's rough. But the uh, but I think the it's, it was smart for Universal because no theme park wants to discount their base ticket, like mm-hmm. the the amount of money that they charge you mm-hmm. to get into one park for one day. That's because once you start discounting it, that's basically the price forever, right? It's very hard to raise it. So the thing I like about this particular GFM Universal is it keeps the one day park admission mm-hmm. at its current rate. And they're basically throwing in park hopping for free. So what they're discounting there isn't the uh, isn't the base admission, it's the park hopping option. The other thing is, is no other Disney's not doing park hopping right now. So it's the ability; it gives the Universal the ability to say, "We can show you two parks in one day." And uh, Disney can't. That is, especially for locals, that that's very appealing yeah. right about now. Yeah, but especially if you if you're uh, even if you're coming in from out of state, and let's say you're a huge Harry Potter fan, it means mm-hmm. now you can see Harry Potter in one day mm-hmm. rather than two, or you can go back and see everything in two days, right? Yeah. So it, it, it definitely makes sense. I'd be very surprised. Like I think the things that Disney's are gonna are is gonna bring back mm-hmm. sooner rather than later. The two things are one, fireworks. Like I think they'll be able to do fireworks and have everybody either socially distant in the parks or outside the parks. Okay. And the other thing is park hopping, because I think and I think it'll be limited. Like it'll be 
onsite guests can park hop. Oh, something like that. That's an yeah, excellent idea to do up onsite occupancy because you know that's especially with those those resorts that got their their openings pushed back to October, November. Yeah. You know that was definitely a canary in the coal mine there. And it allows you to keep the resort prices relatively high and not change the ticket prices, but mm. still add another benefit for staying on site. Yeah, excellent idea. Uh, but again, this is still a resort that's set in Florida, and you know, yeah. as you you have said, you know, previously, Florida just got a Florida. Well, we're, we're hopefully we're past the peak. I, uh, I I've talked to a bunch of uh, epidemiologists, and all of them said uh, told me that the peak was going to be last weekend. Okay. Or two weekends ago now, so the weekend, uh, uh, first, the first weekend of August, and that looks like the case right now. So hopefully, we've all got this under control, and oh, things can great. continue yeah, to improve yeah, uh, from here. Yeah, knockwood. So, yeah, really. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including that dramatic encounter with a uh, with, <laughs> with a duck in the animal kingdom <laughs> on next week's regular show. What might have been with Rivers of Light? And what's going on with that big pile of construction dirt over at the Magic Kingdom parking lot? Jim will let us know. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be slicing double-smoked salmon at Zabar's Fish Counter in Manhattan's Upper West Side in preparation for Rosh Hashanah on Thursday, September 17th, starting at 8 a.m. And Jim, this means it's time for my annual fight with Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> I've told you that story, right? I, it, I vaguely remember this. It was two out of three falls, wasn't it? Or <laughs> I'm I'm in Zabar's in the fall one mm-hmm. year, and I'm in the fish counter, like waiting in line. And, and Zabar's fish counter is super popular, especially mm-hmm. around holidays. So I'm waiting in line, and all of a sudden they start fawning on the guy, like two people ahead of me, mm-hmm. and I'm like, who the who the hell is this? Like they're giving him free samples, and then they start giving other people in line free samples. We all got free samples, but mm-hmm. they're like. How have you been? How's the family? Like it was, it was the prodigal son returning, mm-hmm. right? And I look, and it's Wolf. I, I, I'm pretty sure it looked like Wolf Blitzer, so I'm mm-hmm. not sure it was, it was actually Wolf. I'm assuming it was Wolf Blitzer, and he apparently is like family at Zabar's. And I'm like, that's so nice that they recognized, you know, that he's a local and that they recognize him and that everyone's happy. But if he doesn't finish finish up his <laughs> order here in the next three minutes, there's going to be a headline on CNN that no one wants to see, right? Like Wolf. You're between me and the Nova. Come on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because the, the only the only celebrity encounters I've ever had in New York. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I live in the same building as Bill Nye, the science guy. So I see him all the time. Mm-hmm. But you can't swing a cat without hitting Neil deGrasse Tyson mm-hmm. and my Zabars with a wolf blitzer. Those are my three sort of celebrity encounters when I'm in New York. Uh, <laughs> that's a great Anyway, story. Wolf, if, if that was you, I love you. Thank you for going to Zabars. But Jesus, you're Hurry up with the order. There we go. There we go. Anyway, while Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show. Considering all the conveniences we now have, I'll say that we're really on easy street these days. It just can't get any better. Just goes to show that there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, and tomorrow's just a dream away. Man has a dream, and that's the start. He follows his dream with mind and heart, and when it becomes a reality, it's a dream come true for you and me. So there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. 
shining at the end of every day. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow. Just a dream away.